Have you ever thrown a party? A really big party. Like, a huge party. At the height of the festivities, with the music pumping and everyone just the right amount of imbibed on whatever their substance of choice might be, you look over the throngs of people you brought together and feel triumphant. And your guests look at you like you're some kind of wizard, like a party god. You pulled off the perfect night. But how do you know when things go too far? How do you know when the party's over? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan, a former New York City club kid in my own right. But while I came of age going to the same clubs and parties as these fucking guys, I was, fortunately, not introduced to them until they were dying out. I was in such a hurry to grow up and be accepted by the cool kids that if I'd been around when Michael Alleg was at his height, well, let's just say, who knows where I'd be today. But something tells me it wouldn't be here, writing this script. In truth, I ended up down a long internet rabbit hole about this guy and covered him in an upcoming bonus episode. You can listen to the wild story on our Patreon. For most of the club kids who hung around the so-called party monster, theirs was not a sunny path. I know I have a tendency to harp on about how much better New York City was before it became the corporate hellscape of luxury condos, chipotles, and completely absurd rents that it is today. I know it may be hard to fathom why I long for a time when it was dirty and grungy and a lot less safe, but it was affordable to live there, so of course I prefer New York City at that time. But it was also a lot more colorful. In a piece for the website Barbican, author and music historian Tim Lawrence wrote, quote, During the late 1970s and early 1980s, a cultural renaissance of arguably unprecedented proportions reached its climax in downtown New York. Determined to pursue lives that were more creative, flexible, and open than those led by their hedged-in, 9-to-5 socially conservative parents, a generation of young artists drove the phenomenon. End quote. One subset of these creative weirdos were the club kids. The club kids scene in New York City in the 70s and 80s was the epicenter of everything new and experimental. DJs, artists, musicians, and designers merged their various forms and influences, creating new styles of art, music, and fashion that were all on display at clubs like the Roxy, Pyramid, Mud Club, and Danceteria, among others. Danceteria, incidentally, was where Madonna played her first live show in 1983. Ironically, as wild and counterculture as Madonna was marketed to be, compared to the diehard club kids, she was cotton candy. In a piece for Time Out New York from 2014, famous New York City club promoter Rudolph Piper said, Those were still the good old days of sex and drugs and rock and roll and thank God, we all got plenty of it. The five floors of this supermarket of style were where gays, straights, artists, junkies, goths, skinheads, lost uptowners, sexy, jersey chicks, 
the Pinheads Studio 54, Leftovers, BNTs, Weirdos from Outer Space, Drag Queens, SM Freaks, Hookers, performers of all sorts, East Villagers galore, not to mention musicians of all kinds, got together. We lived over there seven nights a week, week after week. It was so good, and we all thought it would never end. It was more than just entertainment. It was a lifestyle, and it was a school. People stopped me on the street all the time, telling me how important Danceteria was and giving them a direction on how much it changed their lives, for the better or for the worse. It didn't matter. It was well worth it. And it was at Danceteria where, in 1983, a young transplant from Indiana named Michael Alleg got his first nightclub job sweeping floors. Michael Alleg was born in South Bend, Indiana, where he grew up with an older brother and his mother, Elka, a German immigrant. His father was allegedly an alcoholic and largely absent. Now, as with any infamous figure, Alleg's backstory is different with each source you check. A piece in The Village Voice by Frank Owen from 1996 said this, quote, According to someone who knew him in the early 80s, Alex's German mother was a cold, eccentric woman who liked to dress up like a minor Hollywood starlet and kept her son at arm's length, end quote. And in Owen's book, Clubland Confidential, The Fabulous Rise and Murderous Fall of Clubland Culture, published in 2004, he wrote, quote, At the age of five, Michael realized he was gay. I thought God had put a girl's brain in my body and I was the only one he had done that to. At age seven, at his mom's urging, he started to dress up in women's clothes. School chums noticed that when he went to the bathroom, he would sit down to pee like a girl. End quote. However, according to the 1998 documentary Party Monster, The Shockumentary, Alex's own mother, Elka, claims that she didn't know he was gay until he was in college. She doesn't mention anything about him dressing up and instead of I Love Lucy and Dark Shadows, which Frank Owen claimed were Alex's favorite shows growing up, Alex's mother said they watched gory slasher movies like 1962's Blood Feast. It's a little hard to reconcile these two differing accounts, and who knows if any of it is true. People will often tell you only what they want you to know. I don't know. It just seems to me that if she was going to admit that she watched horrible, gory murder movies with him, she would also admit that he wore girls' clothes, considering where he ended up. Anyway. After high school, during which, according to Trisha Romano in a piece on Crime Library, Alec was relentlessly bullied, he got accepted to Fordham University in New York City, where he planned to follow in his father's footsteps and become an architect. He dropped out after only a semester and did a short stint studying at the Fashion Institute of Technology before dropping out of there as well. Alex spent his days working at Zoot in the Village, the coolest secondhand clothing store on the planet. My older sister had a newspaper cutout of their logo on her mirror when we were growing up, and that made her the coolest. Alex spent his nights working at Danceteria. Working at a nightclub seems like a fun job if you're someone who's super into music and dancing and stuff, except that my older sister had a job one summer as a janitor at Pyramid and spent most of her time cleaning up vomit. At Danceteria, Alec met and quickly ingratiated himself to party promoter Rudolf Piper. Many years later, Piper would tell author Frank Owens, Even back then, he had an interesting and 
creative personality. He was troublemaker, a rabble rouser, someone who had the potential to lead others. I liked that about him. By 1985, Alec had convinced Piper to let him start his own dance party at one of Piper's clubs. The party, which he called the Filthy Mouth Contest, included an actual contest to see who could say the most god-awful thing into the mic on stage for cash. As Alec began promoting his party all over town, he started collecting a gaggle of weirdos. And before you get upset at me for using that word, please know I mean it as a compliment. As Frank Owens put it, quote, he zeroed in on an underage crowd, fashion-forward and sexually confused kids fresh off the bus from Port Authority, specimens still young enough to be molded to Alec's warped design. Soon enough, Alec had gathered around him a core group of misfits who were christened the Club Kids by New York Magazine, end quote. Alec was soon throwing parties in the basement of Tunnel, another one of Piper's nightclubs on the west side. But Alec, who was by then dubbed Clown Prince of the Club Kids, often led his ever-growing group of misfits from club to club. It's important for you to get a picture of what these kids looked like. This wasn't high glamour. The aesthetic was a weird mixture of trendy fashion meets clown meets BDSM kink. Everything was strange and over the top. While a lot of the club scene in New York City had become a kind of see-and-be-seen scene, Alec was eager to find a crowd who was a little bit more like him. He told journalist Emma Brox for The Guardian in 2014, Other people were having a hard time assimilating like I was when I was growing up. I came to New York and provided an oasis where they could come and be celebrated, and we were completely anti-drug in the beginning. It was a very creative, positive thing. Come to New York and join our group where you'll be celebrated for the thing that makes you kooky or the outcast. The parties attracted some folks who were or would become pretty well-known entities. You might have heard of RuPaul. He was one of the club kids. As was Calvin Klein model Jenny Talia. But Alec would soon get a lucky break when a beloved figure of New York City nightlife died, which sounds macabre, but it's nowhere near as bad as what was to come. In February of 1987, the famed Pope of Pop, Andy Warhol, died. Warhol had become such a fixture in the New York City club scene that club owners feared his death would be an albatross for their bank accounts. On the cover of The Village Voice, journalist and club kid Michael Musto decried Warhol's death as the death of downtown. Word to city planners everywhere, if the success of your city hinges on one eccentric celebrity, you might want to go back to the drawing board. But there was still some time before New York City lost its soul, and Michael Alec saw Warhol's death as an opportunity to take the reins. Alec was determined to populate this kingdom with his own band of misfits and clowns. In March of 88, Alec landed on the front page of New York Magazine under the headline Club Kids. And in 89, Peter Gation hired Alec to throw parties at his nightclub Limelight. A piece in a 1996 New York Magazine piece quoted Michael Musto, quote, Disco 2000 was a whole new world, an alternative reality. It was a place where people who were freaks in school could come from Iowa or New Jersey and reinvent themselves or dress up in their sister's clothes or just be what they wanted to be. It was totally sexy and outrageous and totally artificial. And grown-ups weren't invited. End quote. And for the record, yes, New Yorkers absolutely put Iowa and New Jersey in the same category. If it's not New York, it might as well be Iowa. 
By 1990, Alec was running parties at Gation's nightclubs all over town and living out his dream of reorganizing the social structure of New York City nightlife. At this point, Alec and his club kids were making appearances on Geraldo and Joan Rivers, which was a way to attract more club goers, but really, I think the aim was to shock and disrupt the status quo. It was like subversive performance art, meant to poke fun at capitalism and celebrity using capitalism and celebrity. As journalist Christopher Boland put it in a 2010 feature on Alec in Interview Magazine, quote, Far from a bunch of ecstasy heads lost in strobe lights, the club kids created a youth movement that was an entrepreneurial corporation set upon changing society while working within its preferred strategies. It must have seemed for a while like the club kids really could take over the world. End quote. Shock value was a major currency at Alec's parties. And of course, the thing about shock is that people become desensitized pretty quickly and stunts need to become more and more shocking in order to make any kind of wave. So what started out as a sort of edgy fashion show turned into things like Alec handing unsuspecting clubgoers cups of his own pee and watching while they drank it, or women shoving soda bottles up their bathing suit area holes and spraying the crowd with soda, I'm assuming and hoping, or people smearing themselves with blood or pieces of raw liver until the stench was so bad it literally repelled fellow revelers. For one party, called Blood Feast, named after the movie Alec's mother claimed he loved as a kid, the flyer for the party was a picture of Jenny Talia holding the severed head of Alec with a bloody hammer in the foreground. Remember that image for later. And while the club kids started out totally drug-free, it didn't take long for that to change. Alec began throwing a party called Emergency Room, in which clubgoers dressed as doctors and nurses would give out fake prescriptions for hard drugs and dealers would fill them. For free. If there is one thing that's going to transform your totally drug-free dance party, it's totally free drugs. Alec told Christopher Bolin, It's all sort of a joke. They started in 1992 and we did them once a month. They were so popular, we did them once a week, then two, and then three times a week. Eventually, every night was the emergency room at all four clubs. The problem was it became this idea of if you're not giving us free ecstasy and cocaine and special K, we're not going. By the mid-90s, Alec was a full-blown addict with an expensive habit. And as Trisha Romano of the Crime Library put it, Quote, there's no better way to procure drugs than to be friends with a drug dealer, end quote. The mid-90s were also, incidentally, when I started going to Limelight myself. I'll cover my personal connection to the club kid scene and some of its players in a bonus episode. It was a time in which, in all truth, I was way out of my comfort zone and mostly hated going to clubs. Loud music, dancing, and people? Those are the three things I hate the most. Anyway. One such dealer in the scene was a kid who went by the name Angel Melendez. Born Andre Melendez, Angel's family moved to the U.S. from Colombia, and at 26, Angel moved to New York City with the hopes of becoming an actor. Soon, Angel started going to Alec's parties at Limelight and Tunnel and made himself indispensable to Alec by supplying him with drugs. Angel's signature look was huge white handmade angel wings and a black leather biker cap pulled low over his eyes. 
And even though Angel became one of the more well-known dealers in the club kids' circle and kept Alig in a steady supply of cocaine, heroin, and K, Alig and his most inner circle saw Angel as a nuisance. They considered him a kind of wannabe hanger-on. That's the thing about being a dealer. You may seem incredibly popular with throngs of people around you all the time, but that doesn't mean that anyone likes you. Kind of like being a Hollywood producer. Despite that, Angel was living with Alec at this point, which was obviously a terrific idea. A drug addict living with the dealer he can barely stand? Sound decisions. Shockingly, Alec would steal Angel's money and drugs when Angel wasn't home. I know, you didn't see that one coming. At some point in 95 or 96, the DEA began investigating club owner Peter Gation, and both Limelight and Tunnel were frequently raided and shut down for a time. Gation began to feel the squeeze from the DEA and began cracking down on drugs in his clubs. In March of 1996, Angel himself was kicked out of Limelight when Gation spotted him in a VIP section and ordered his bouncers to get rid of him, which they did, apparently carrying a kicking and screaming Angel out of the club head first. Despite his protests, though, it seems Angel had become somewhat disenchanted with the club kid scene and was particularly tired of Alec taking advantage of him. Apparently, Angel wanted out once he realized that Alec and the club kids weren't going to get him the recognition he had hoped they would. He wanted to become a singer, and he was going to start looking for a job at a record label. On March 17th, not long after getting kicked out of Limelight, Angel went to Alec's apartment in Midtown to confront him about some money Alec owed him. The doorman let Angel in, recognizing him from his frequent comings and goings. Angel walked into Alec's apartment, super wound up from being owed money and from having been kicked out of Alec's own party at Limelight, and found Alec and his friend Robert Riggs, who went by the really cheesy nickname Freeze, like some kind of Justice League villain, deep in the throes of a drug binge. Angel demanded not just the money for all the drugs Alec had stolen from him, but also $1,400 he said Gation owed him for supplying drugs to hotel room orgies Gation allegedly hosted. Gross. Considering how much money Alec was making on his parties and that his drug habit cost him no money at all, Alec probably could have just paid Angel, told him to go away, and we would all be doing something else right now. But Alec, fueled by whatever cocktail of illicit drugs he had in his system, as well as an overdeveloped ego, decided a better idea would be to say that Angel could consider all the money he owed him as rent for all the times he stayed at Alec's for free. Angel was not a fan of this suggestion, so Alec was like, okay, okay, I don't have the money on me per se, but I'll go to Limelight tonight and get it. Scout's honor. And even though this is the oldest trick in the book, Angel, who, by the way, never did drugs himself, said okay. And then the three men took a nap. That's right. They were like, give me my money. No, it's my money. No, it's my money. Okay, fine. But first, let's take a nap. Okay. I mean, look, I am all for naps, but this just doesn't seem like a good time. Robert Freeze Riggs would later say that shortly after laying down, he heard a commotion in the living room and Alec screaming, help me, get him off of me. When he got to the living room, Freeze said he saw Angel shaking Alec and saying, you better get my money or I'll break your fucking neck. Super helpfully, Freeze yelled, 
Yo, why are you yelling at Michael? If it wasn't for Michael, Peter wouldn't give you the time of day. Angel replied, warning him to stay out of it, and rather than stay out of it, Freeze instead chose to triple down, saying, And nobody likes you anyway. You and your outfits are tacky. You're lucky Michael lets you come to the club the way you dress. Sigh. Okay. You are an adult man, Freeze. Just come on. And then, as Frank Owens recounts in his book Clubland, quote, These catty comments incensed Angel, and he turned to Michael. Are you going to let him talk to me like that? He spat in his face. Freeze looked at Alec and made a disdainful expression as if to suggest that Angel meant nothing to either of them. End quote. So, naturally now, a scuffle ensued between the three men, during which Alec crashed into a glass cabinet, getting a long shard of glass lodged into his neck. Alec screamed. Angel then sunk his teeth into Alec's chest. At this point, Freeze was frantically trying to pry Angel off Alec, pleading with him to let Alec go. In a panic, Freeze grabbed a nearby hammer and swung it into Angel's head. But the blow didn't seem to do much more than further enrage Angel. So Freeze hit him again, this time sending Angel to his knees. But still, through all of this, Angel had not released his teeth from Alec's chest. Freeze hit him again, this time as hard as he could. Angel let out a moan and sank to the floor, unconscious. Despite Angel being passed out, Alec pounced on him and began choking him and suffocating him with either a sweatshirt or a pillow, or he didn't do that at all, depending on whose account you believe. And then, as Frank Owens puts it, quote, At this point, Freeze and Alec thought Angel was merely unconscious. So they did what they always did when Angel was asleep. They stole small amounts of drugs from each of his vials, so when he woke up, he wouldn't notice the shortfall, end quote. I mean, you can't expect them to make good decisions at this point. A while later, after their drug interlude, Angel was still passed out, so the two men put Angel in a bathtub filled with ice water in an attempt, they would later say, to wake him up. And then Freeze went to get a medical book, because I guess that's a thing a club kid would just have laying around. I mean, Lord knows, they probably did deal with a lot of overdoses. Jesus Christ. Anyway, when Freeze got back to the bathroom, he said he found Alec pouring some kind of chemical cleaner down Angel's throat. When Freeze reasonably asked Alec what the fuck he was doing, Alec said, He's been dead for hours. I'm trying to embalm the body. Help me here. I mean... There are differing accounts of this awful murder and what happened next, including from Alec himself, whose own story changed with time. Some versions say Alec injected the Drano into Angel using a needle, and in some versions, there was no use of Drano at all. Alec then called his employer, Peter Gation, because, of course he did. I don't know what you do when you commit a heinous murder, but I definitely call my boss first thing. Gation's girlfriend answered the phone, and I don't know exactly what Alec told her, but whatever it was, she was like, not today, Bob. Call a lawyer. But Alec later said, The first thing we were thinking was if we go to jail, we're going to be sick in six hours. So what did they do next? Why they left to get more drugs, naturally. They leaned a mattress up against the bathroom door and spent the next week 
doing drugs. And as Jonathan Van Meter wrote in New York Magazine in 1996, they tried to figure out what to do. They allegedly threw parties while Angel's body was in the bathtub and told people the smell was from a broken pipe. Like a more awful version of Hitchcock's rope. But of course, by parties, he probably meant people just came over and did drugs. Freeze later told police that about a week after the murder, the two men decided to cut up Angel's body to dispose of it. Freeze got knives and said he gave Alec 10 bags of heroin to cut up the body. I don't know if he meant as, like, payment or like that was the amount of heroin Alec needed just to get through the awful task of cutting up a human body. They put the body parts in a cardboard box and sealed it up with tape, and then, instead of using the back service elevator that might have been slightly less conspicuous, not only did they take the main elevator, they asked the doorman for a luggage cart for the box. Then they hailed a cab. The cab driver helped secure the box in the trunk and then drove them to the Hudson River around 25th Street, where the men threw the box into the water. Within a couple weeks of Angel's disappearance, when calls to Angel's beeper went unanswered, his older brother Johnny got worried. He traveled into New York City from Jersey and filed a missing person report, but got the sense that the police weren't that concerned about a missing drug dealer. So Johnny launched his own investigation, visiting morgues, hanging flyers all over downtown Manhattan, offering a $4,000 reward, and visiting any place he thought his brother might have hung out. What Johnny heard over and over again was that Angel's former friend, Michael Alleg, was going around telling anyone who would listen that he killed Angel. But Alleg had created such a cult of personality around himself that people thought he was just saying things to be sensational. And when Johnny and his father, who joined his son in New York City from Columbia to help find Angel, asked the club kids to speak to the police, no one would. Mr. Melendez was quoted in an article in the New York Times in December 1996 as saying, That was the hardest thing. All these club kids knew. They could see the pain, the agony in my eyes. But none of them would help. I don't know who or what they were protecting. Meanwhile, the DEA was still sniffing around Peter Gation and his nightclubs. In early April, Gation abruptly fired Alec, who responded by calling journalist Michael Musto, I guess to get his side of the story out before Gation did? Musto said Alec was jittery and nervous and really on edge. Musto mentioned Angel's disappearance and whispers around the nightlife community about who had done it. Two weeks later, apparently, Alec called New York Magazine and admitted that he had a fight with Angel over money and knew about rumors of body parts. And yet police didn't seem to care. And then, on April 23rd, Musto ran another piece in The Voice. He didn't mention names or any identifying details, for liability purposes, I suppose, but outlined the details of the murder, calling the characters The Dealer, Mr. Mess, and Mr. Mess 2. And, for the record, the piece claimed that Mr. Mess injected the dealer with Drano. So, there you go. The New York City tabloids picked up on the story, splashing headlines about the missing victim and presumed murderer and the gruesome details. And still, somehow, police didn't seem to care. Their reasoning was that there was no body, so there wasn't anything to investigate. 
What are you actually talking about, Willis? How many cases have we heard about in which police investigate a missing adult person despite there being no body? Most of them? Come on. In May of that year, the DEA came down hard on Peter Gation, arresting him and shutting down his nightclubs. In September, a woman fishing in the Harlem River reeled in a dead body. The New York Post, ever the paragon of truth and journalism, declared the body to be that of missing drug dealer Angel Melendez. It wasn't. But that news story rang a bell in the head of Staten Island police officer Detective Ralph Gango. As Frank Owen reported in his book, Detective Gango remembered from all the way back on April 12th, quote, a group of children had discovered a box containing the badly decomposed torso of a man in his 20s. An autopsy showed the victim had asphyxiated and had been struck in the back of the head. At first, Gango thought it was another one of the anonymous floaters that turn up all the time on Staten Island shores, end quote. First of all, Staten Island. Jesus, no thank you. Secondly, a man was missing. Rumors around New York City was that someone was claiming to have murdered him and dismembered him and threw him in the river, and it took you four months to put the fucking pieces together? Good God. Apparently, the torso had been misidentified as Asian, though how or why, I have no idea, and was eventually buried in a numbered grave as a John Doe. Police exhumed the torso, which I guess had the arms attached because they reported not being able to get fingerprints because of the state of decomposition. And they were somehow able to identify the torso as that of Angel Melendez. For the record, the so-called torso must have also had a neck and head if they were able to determine it had been asphyxiated and struck on the back of the head. So not so much a torso as the entire top half of a person? Still, for some reason, it wasn't until early November that a murder investigation was launched. And it took another month for police to arrest Alec, even though he had gone all over New York telling everyone he did it. Finally, on December 5th, police arrested Alec and Riggs. Alec had by that time hired a lawyer and was now refusing to talk. Unfortunately for him, though, Robert Freeze Riggs sang like a hopeful chorus girl at a non-equity open call and told police everything they needed to know in both a written and videotaped confession. The reason Alec had a lawyer was not because he had brutally murdered and dismembered someone while in a drug-addled frenzy, but because he had been working with the DEA as a witness against his former boss, Peter Gation. Now look, I'm no DEA agent or anything, but do you suppose it's possible that the entire reason the police weren't going after Alec in the first place was that the DEA had asked them to wait until they could build a case against Gation? Is that a reasonable guess? It is, according to Trisha Romano at Crime Library. She wrote, quote, When Alec was finally arrested, the district attorney's office and the DEA were in a death match over Alec, whom the DEA hoped would be a star witness. The DEA had been building a case against club owner Peter Gation for months and hoped Alec would be a key witness. If Alec was a convicted or suspected murderer, his testimony wasn't so valuable. 
if his trial happened after the Gation case went to trial, the DEA would have a better case. In the end, Alec recanted all of his testimony against Gation. End quote. Anyway. Despite the confession from Riggs, the prosecution were concerned about their chances of convicting Alec because most of their witnesses were, let's just say, unreliable. Ultimately, Alec and Riggs pleaded to first-degree manslaughter for lighter prison sentences. At their sentencing hearing, the judge asked the pair if they had anything to say for themselves. Riggs read from a prepared statement that sounded appropriately regretful and contrite. He said, in part... That I was a party to the death of another human being wounds me in the depths of my heart and soul. I can never undo that. I endeavor to understand the aspects of myself that led me down such a gross and destructive path, but I have yet to come to any definitive conclusions. Riggs was sentenced to 10 to 20 years. And when it came time for Alec to speak to his horrific actions, he was unprepared and high on trazodone, clonopin, and Depakote, among other drugs. Alex said, I came here today not prepared to accept my sentence, so I didn't come up with a speech because I was told we were going to postpone for another week, two weeks, or something like that. I don't know. All I know is I've been told lots of different things by lots of different people in exchange for me doing other things, and none of it has come true. I feel like I have been just railroaded. I've been used by the feds. When they were through with me, they just sent me over here. I feel like I've been lied to to get me here to accept this plea, and I feel terrible that I don't have anything prepared to say. That's what you feel terrible about? Yikes. In response, the judge clarified that Alec was claiming that he was the victim in all of this. In a way, Alec replied, to which the judge, who clearly had prepared a statement, said, I don't think you are the victim. I think that Angel Melendez is the victim. He is the victim of your selfish, uncontrolled ego that has yet to be harnessed, that has yet to face reality. For you, the show is over. The party is over. He, too, was sentenced to 10 to 20 years. Riggs was released in March of 2010 for good behavior and actually completely turned his life around. He went back to school and ended up getting a fellowship to pursue a PhD in sociology from NYU and has become a real-life, honest-to-God academic. Alec, on the other hand, continued to seek the spotlight, giving pretty uncomfortable interviews from prison in which it's clear his brain was fried. Either that, or he was actually just an incredibly twisted, narcissistic sociopath. Or maybe both? Alec was released in 2014 and instantly worked to get himself back in the public eye, giving interviews and using every psychopath's favorite platform, Twitter, to gain a following again. On Christmas Eve of 2020, at age 54, Alec died of what his mother Elka called an accidental heroin overdose but was found by an autopsy to be, quote, acute intoxication by fentanyl, acetafentanyl, heroin, and methamphetamine, end quote. Listen, it seems trite to say the moral of this story is don't do drugs, but like, maybe don't do drugs. In all seriousness, though, aside from the awful, 
awful tragedy of the murder of Angel Melendez, there is also a tale in here about a desperate need to be seen. Alec's initial stated mission of gathering together kids who are outcasts to form a community is beautiful and noble. But somewhere along the way, his ego got in the way. It became less about celebrating a community and more about worshipping a self-made demigod who was boundaryless and willing to do more and more outrageous things for attention and who mistook adoration for some kind of immortality. Even after he'd done the unthinkable, he still was just trying to be seen, telling whoever he could what he'd done so that maybe someone would see him. But no one ever did see or know Michael Alec, least of all, himself. Next time on Strange and Unexplained, when five friends pile into their car to see their favorite basketball team, they somehow manage to head down a very wrong path and never come home. The Yuba County Five. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network and is produced by Natalie Grillo and Angela Palladino. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, researched by Jess McKillop, edited by Eve Kerrigan, and sound engineered and mixed by Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Luther Creek and Ryan Garcia. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have a story for something you'd like us to cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, head over to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. Can't get enough Strange and Unexplained? Head to our Patreon at patreon.com slash strangeandunexplained for bonus episodes, ad-free episodes, and exclusive video content. Next Monday, August 28th, we will be releasing the fully produced and edited video of the Strange and Unexplained live show, Escape from Alcatraz. If you like our show, please do help us out by giving us a five-star rating and a glowing review wherever you listen to podcasts. Our critics are vocal and unafraid of submitting those one-star reviews. If you don't like the show, feel free to give a one-star and a scathing review. The name of the podcast is the Glenn Beck Program Podcast. <laughs>